Welcome to a new episode of New Work in Intellectual History. My name is Selma Zondan and I am a master's student of intellectual history at the University of St. Andrews. With me today is Dr. Rosalind Parr, who currently works as a lecturer in modern history at the School of History at the University of St. Andrews, and who will be taking up a new post as lecturer in modern history at the University of Wolverhampton as of February 2022. Ross' research focuses on global and South Asian history in the 19th to 20th century. She's particularly interested in aspects of gender history, international feminism and anti-colonialism. Today, we will be exploring the interrelation between anti-colonialism, international feminism and intellectual history along Ross' most recent book entitled Citizens of Everywhere, Indian Women, Nationalism and Cosmopolitanism 1920-1952, which was published with Cambridge University Press in 2021. I will begin by asking Ross a couple of questions about her book before then starting a conversation about the conclusions that could be drawn from the examples given in her work about the area of intellectual history. Welcome, Ross, and thank you for taking the time today to speak with me. Um, thank you very much, Selma. Thank you for having me. Well, to start off our conversation, could I ask you to just briefly outline what your book is about? Sure. Um, this book is about the careers of a number of quite prominent um, Indian women who were involved with the Indian nationalist movement um, in, this, in the sort of final decades of colonial rule. So we're talking about the 1920s onwards, in some casing, cases slightly earlier as well. Um, but as well as being involved in Indian nationalism, um, they are also engaged internationally with um, international women's movements, with the League of Nations, and later with the United Nations. And my book covers um, various episodes from their career to explore um, the idea of cosmopolitan nationalism, which is both, I see both as a sort of way of thinking, but also as a, as, as a practice, um, just to examine the uh, this um, aspect of their careers um, in the decades, as you say, between 1920 and 1952. And let me link in on that. You chose this very particular time frame, 1920 to 1952. Um, could you explain to us the historical context which the book specifically talks about and why you chose this time frame within the final decades of um, colonization? Sure. Um, so it's quite a specific time frame uh, and it does address the real sort of moment, uh, this sort of revitalization of Indian nationalism in the final decades of imperial rule. It's also a moment of crisis uh, in, in a sort of global context for European imperialism um, because we have like notions of self-determination um, becoming prominent. There's a real crisis of legitimacy. Um, and this period from, nine, from the 1920s onwards is the period when the Indian women's movement really emerges um, and it's you know extremely energetic uh, and vibrant movement in these decades. Um, so really I'm focusing on this period of quite intense activity, which is linked into the emergence of, 
or the revitalization of um, anti-colonialism in uh, India, but also this kind of global moment, um, which is a global moment um, of flux, really, um, where, this, where the imperial order um, is um, in crisis. And these new possibilities, um, we have the, of, of course, we have the, uh, the revolution in, in um, in, in Russia, we also have yeah, these ideas, the emergence of um, self-determination and sort of, uh, American um, dominance sort of emerging. Um, so yeah, this, this, this time frame really um, engages with this moment of possibility, which is also a moment of intense activity for Indian women's organizations. It's quite interesting how you cho chose this very particular um, example but can trace it to, to world happenings. May I ask, how did you discover the specific Indian women leaders whose careers you trace in the book within the um, women's nationalism movement in India? So these, many of the women that I look at in this book are known within the history of Indian nationalism. So as a historian of South Asia, I was aware of some of these women. So particularly uh, Sarojini Naidu, who is one of the leading um, women that I that I examine in the book. Um, she was a, sort of a very well-known Indian nationalist uh, figure. So she was a poet who had been uh, published uh, in the 1900s. She was quite well-known in literary circles, but she was also um, sort of a well-known figure with Indian nationalism as a spokesperson for Indian nationalism. And she was quite closely connected to some really um, uh, key Indian nationalist figures, um, including uh, um, Mahatma Gandhi. So she was quite well known. Um, there were others um, who were less well known, but not unheard of within um, Indian women's history. So people like Hansa Mehta, who um, was a leader of the All India Women's Comp conference, which was one of the leading uh, Indian women's organizations. So they were known. Um, but when I started my research, when I started looking um, in the archives at sort of collections of personal papers, I became aware of the extent of their careers. And I, I fixed on, um, I decided to focus on a, a, a handful of women, really, um, who were active in um, first Indian nationalism, but also within the Indian women's movement. So looking through the records of um, the archives of the Indian women's movements uh, organizations, um, then I identified um, yeah, certain women who I thought were you know, particularly interesting and uh, could tell us a lot about the international activities of uh, Indian women in this period. And what exactly was the role that um, you describe did these women have in, in nationalism and cosmopolitanism in, in India at the time? And especially, how do nationalism and cosmopolitanism interrelate in their work and in, the, in that period? And what benefit um, lies in making this their role known to a broader readership, maybe even beyond um, South Asian um, history uh, students or researchers? Mm -hmm. So 
in the history of Indian nationalism, and women are understood to have played an important role, certainly an important symbolic role. Um, the reason for this was that uh, women and the status of women was one of the key areas, uh, one of the key um, areas of contention between imperialism and nationalism, with both um, perspectives claiming to protect the rights of Indian women. So Indian women sort of became the part of the terrain really on which, uh, in which imperialism and Indian nationalism clashed. Um, and so drawing on this, then people have always understood Indian women as um, an important uh, symbolic, of, of quite important, yes, yeah, symbolic um, importance for thinking about um, yeah, women within nationalism. But I wanted to show um, that Indian women were more than just symbols of Indian nationalism um, and that their engagement with Indian nationalism and cosmopolitanism uh, and international activity was a, a distinct uh, contribution to history that had been overlooked. Um, and their engagement with these international with international organizations um, is a distinct role which um, does really distinguish them from a lot of male nationalists. So, you know, they did carve out a distinct um, role within the history of Indian nationalism. So by engaging with these, uh, with, in, uh, with international women's organizations, which were generally Western led, uh, they brought new perspectives to international feminism. So um, for example, um, as Indian women, they had often been the subject of British women's organizations who were trying to advocate and speak on behalf of Indian women. Um, but Indian women's organizations in this period from the 1920s onwards are specifically demanding that they speak on behalf of Indian women. So really subverting those um, imperialist uh, relationships and um, so what I try to argue in the book is that they do actually have a real impact on uh, the way that some international feminists think about Indian womenhood and think about, you know, their own role within it. Uh, some women, uh, some women's organisations, and I try and trace these relationships in the book, um, come to accept this role that of that Indian women are claiming that they should speak on behalf of Indian women. They listen to the perspectives, the ideas, and what they come to see as the expertise of Indian women in the Indian women's context. And this is, I think, a shift in the history of international feminism. I find that last point extremely important and, and interesting um, about the, the influence you described um, on the global histories of women's rights. To what extent would you say does these women's pursuit of independence and women's rights allow more general conclusions about a potential intersectionality of anti-colonialism and feminism? Yes, I think this is a really good point. So um, these perspectives, the um, 
that we see in Indian women's interactions with international women's organizations um, undermine the universalist claims of um, Western women's organizations. So in that sense, then this is a form of intersectionality. Um, Indian feminists, for a start, often um, did not accept the term feminism because they associated it with uh, Western women's organizations. Um, but they claimed that Indian women had uh, certain perspectives and these were not addressed uh, by uh, the universe, the universality or the universal claims of, um, of international feminism. Um, but at the same time, I do think we have to be uh, slightly careful when we're thinking about intersectionality because within the Indian context, these women do um, themselves represent a sort of high elite, high caste perspective. Um, so if we're searching for intersectionality more broadly, we also would need to think about sort of subaltern claims and the ways that um, different perspectives, caste, religion, class, for example, intersected with these high caste, elite, mobile, Western educated women's perspectives. Thank you for your perspective on that. I wonder if what you just said or what we just talked about, about the intersectionality ties in with a comment that you made in the preparation for this interview. You said that your work might not be um, considered what might be called classic intellectual history. Could you explain what you meant by that? Yes, I mean, I. I think if people are listening to this and are hoping to find sort of classic intellectual history, um, then this is not what um, they would uh, be expecting. Um, by classic intellectual history, I suppose I'm talking about, um, you know, key canonical uh, Western, often male thinkers whose work um, is sort of seen as foundational in the history of ideas. Um, these women um, were not, cannot be classed predominantly as thinkers for a start. Um, they are, um, they are activists, but I do think they have a role in the history of political thought. Um, so their ideas, um, I think, do inform global a global history particularly of the history of internationalism but also the history of uh, international feminism as I've just been explaining um so I think um you know I also consider sort of classic intellectual history is is often um associated with yeah as I mentioned western male thinkers um in this case uh these women, um, of course, they're women, they're non-Western, but they 
seem to, for me, they represent a certain process in the history of ideas. So um, I'm drawing here on uh, some of the ideas of um, Chris Bailey, who is a, who was um, a historian of South Asia, and he wrote a very well-known book about um, the history of Indian liberalism, which is called Recovering Liberties. Um, and he talks about this process of um, appropriation, cannibalization, and reauthoring, refashioning of, of ideas. Um, so, so ideas about liberty, um, sort of liberal ideas, um, and but refashioning them according to the Indian context, bringing in indigenous Indian um, ideas, but particularly kind of engaging and creatively reinterpreting and in this case in the case of these women redeploying these ideas and it's here in this kind of process of rearticulation that their his that their contribution to the history of ideas is relevant i i remember reading um in your book that the women you write about also had an impact on global notions of citizenship and rights, which I believe is often a core subject in, in intellectual history. Um, in which way do you think um, does their perspective or should their perspective be regarded um, as an addition to intellectual history that enriches our perspective or, or the perspective of um, classic intellectual history? Yes, I really do hope that yeah, this, uh, their interventions, as I kind of outlined in the book, can enrich our understanding of the history of rights. Um, and this is um, yeah, quite a complex history. And I think particularly in sort of histories of the global south, then rights are very much associated with um, the history of imperialism. You know, they're seen as this Western um, and exploitative type of, of ideology. Um, so one of the things I want to show in the book is that this, um, the, these women's careers show that um, the history of rights in this in the imperial context can also be subversive. So by taking um, these supposedly universalist ideas about rights, these women um, are rearticulating the idea of who ideas of who rights apply to um, and where they derive from. Um, so that's one. Um, that's one way of thinking about it. But there is another way of thinking about the history of rights, which is that you know, a more celebratory idea of the history of rights, that um, you know, they're sort of a gift from the West to, um, to the rest of the world. Um, and in sort of conversation with that, I'd like to show that the idea of the idea, ideas about rights are constantly evolving and in motion, and that they've been developed and evolved over time by multiple actors, including these Indian women who rearticulated and appropriated ideas about rights for, for a new context. Um, 
to to make um to make claims for uh, for themselves but also um more universally for um for other women and uh, other colonized peoples well thank you for that i think that's quite the important insight for a, a broad variety of readers um especially in the in the area of intellectual history allow me one last question I would like to know, how did you come to choose the title Citizens of Everywhere? Well, this title, so the book is about citizenship, really. It's about ideas about citizenship and about struggles for citizenship, both for uh, citizenship in a formal sense, so um, rights, civil, political rights, um, but also in a sort of broader sense of belonging. So a sense of, so remembering that um, colonial subjects were not citizens. Um, and yet, you know, they, they, there was a sense of belonging, um, it, both in an imperial context, and as I show in the book, um, in a global context as well. These women felt that they were that they belonged to this global entity that was bigger than uh, the nation, bigger than the empire. Um, it sort of transcended those two frameworks. So it was it was reflecting on this um, idea of first of all citizenship rights, but also on ideas about belonging. And the everywhere comes from this sense that these women are thinking and acting globally. So it's subverting the sort of usual methodological nationalism or sort of more traditional methodological nationalism um, through which we usually look at struggles for independence, for national independence. And um, so that's where the everywhere comes in. But it's also a play on uh, when I was thinking about the book, um, I was reminded of these claims by um, certain politicians, including our former uh, prime minister here in the UK, um, who who claimed that you know people couldn't be citizens of everywhere. There was a, a, um, a, a sort of quite well known speech um, by Theresa May who claimed that you know, if you think you're a citizen of everywhere, you're a citizen of nowhere. So I was also sort of play, quite playfully um, engaging with that kind of idea that uh, these women felt that they could be you know, citizens of this new emerging independent India, but they also saw themselves as citizens of the world uh, and they, um, and they sort of demonstrated that by engaging internationally with international movements and with international organizations. It really does sound like you managed to wrap up this abundance of perspectives in your book in, in one title. So uh, it, it sounds very good. And I have to say, I am amazed by how many different things um, you have let's say already included in the book and i think we have not even probably have not even covered half of it in in this very short interview um but for now i want to thank you again for being with me here today i'm looking forward to hearing more from you in the future 
And until then, uh, all best for you. Thank you very much. <laughs>